John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 16. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, uh, Bethsaida, uh, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, at this point, I stop. If you have the ESV or the NIV or another modern translation, verse 3 stops right there, and there's no verse 4, as there's a textual variant here that I'll explain as we move through the verses. For the rest of us who have the NAS or New King James, King James, the text continues on and says, Waiting for the waters, the moving of the waters, verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down to a certain, at uh, certain seasons to the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 5 says, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool uh, when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your uh, pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away uh, away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray our Father and our God again. We are just so thankful for the opportunity to come and to worship you together corporately. We're thankful for uh, the many mercies you always pour out to us through the person of Christ. Uh, we're thankful that you give us an opportunity to, to live lives for the glory of your Son and the glory of you, our Father. May we do that. May we uh, shine brightly in a dark world for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a new chapter, right, uh, from chapter 4. We spent quite a bit of time in that, but we're in a new chapter. It's really a vital chapter here in the ongoing story, and it really is a chapter that sets forth a dramatic change in the book. Uh, the, the direction of the book, although we're early on in the chapters. Uh, and this chapter begins with a story about healing, but healing really isn't the issue here in this uh, first part of the chapter. Healing's not the issue. Instead, the chapter really provides for us, uh, and so instead of providing for us a wonderful opportunity to rejoice uh, on the occasion of this man's healing, uh, I hate to be a downer, but, but the chapter is really pathetic. It's really a pathetic look at, at mankind. Uh, the main emphasis in the chapter is not the healing. Again, the main emphasis is the devastating, damning power of false religion, of false religious systems. That really is the issue. 
So the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, approaches this crowd of sufferers here at this pool who are not only sick, uh, they are helpless, and the truth is he's neither wanted nor recognized. When the Lord asks one of the most helpless sufferers there at the pool if he desires to make whole, uh, to be made whole, instead of responding to that sympathetic inquirer, uh, that he would desire for mercy to be showed upon him. Instead, he makes an excuse uh, for why it's someone else's fault for his condition because no one will help him get into the water when the water begins to move so that he might be healed. And amazingly, he holds fast to and fails to admit the failure of the system that he superstitiously believes in and has confidence in that has not brought him relief from his condition for some 38 years now. So it really is a shocking story. It's a, an amazingly shocking story of ingratitude, of spiritual blindness. When Christ again comes out of tremendous compassion and his sovereign grace and heals the man immediately and heals him perfectly. The man remains uh, ignorant to the glory of the person who he has encountered, his benefactor. He is indifferent. Again, filled with ingratitude, he doesn't even stop to bother to ask the man's name who has just healed him from his infirmity, nor has he stopped to thank him. Now, at the end of the story, fearing the Jewish religious leaders, uh, this uh, man who's just been healed will, in essence, turn Jesus or deliver Jesus over to his enemies. The religious leaders in the story, they have no concern whatsoever for the man. They have no interest in his healing. They could not care a bit that mercy was shown to this man, that his life has been immediately, instantaneously changed forever because of this healing. They're only interested in the fact that he is not obeying one of their rules, one of their laws that they have made up. He has picked up his mat, and he is carrying a burden as they would see it on the Sabbath. They are incensed that he is violating their laws, their rules, and they are also incensed by the fact that somebody would have the audacity to give him the permission to do so. So Christ heals this man, and he heals him on the Sabbath intentionally to provoke a confrontation between himself and the false religious leaders of Israel. And from this point forward in the Gospel of John, there's going to be a shift in the nation's attitude, if you will, towards Jesus, from at least so far it has been reservation, if you will, uh, the first uh, chapters uh, three and uh, one through four, uh, to now it's going to be outright rejection. And the whole attitude really is summed up here at the end of the text I just read in verse 16. It says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now I told you previously in our study, when John uses that phraseology, the Jews, He's not just speaking about the Jewish people in general in Israel. It's really somewhat of a technical term for him to uh, show us that he's really referring to the religious leaders of Israel. And they are the ones who are persecuting him. And the word persecute there means to run or make run or flee. Uh, it really means to pursue in a hostile manner, to harass, to trouble. And the verb is in the continuous uh, uh, tense. It's a continuing action verb, but it's an imperfect meaning that it just goes on. It goes on and goes on. From this point forward, this is going to be the interaction with these fellows uh, with Jesus. It's going to be persecution. It's going to be persecution that runs itself all the way to the cross, where the religious leaders through the hands of the Romans will execute Jesus. So what you have here at the beginning of chapter 5, again, is not a story of uh, healing so much as it really is a story about false religion and the damning effects, the damning powerful effects of false religions a religion or religious systems have over people. The devastating grip 
that false religious systems hold over people's minds and their lives as Satan uh, likes to hold people captive in ideological fortresses built upon lies which they cannot escape from by their own power. Uh, We talked about that last week uh, from the pulpit, uh, and I think you discussed it, if I'm correct, this morning out of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Just as a side note, if you don't come uh, to Sunday school, you're missing something. Right? If you don't come to evening service, you're missing something. In a dark world, when I say it's a dark world, everybody shakes their head. And when I say we need to sit into the teaching of the Word, everybody shakes their head. Except I've got something else better to do in the morning, or I can't get myself up or my family up, and I can't get here in the evening because it's too far, or I'm too tired, I've got to get ready for the work week. Those are probably not good reasons. Uh, The regular sitting under the regular teaching of the word from the pulpit, not just under me, but from the pulpit is one of the regular means of sanctifying grace that God gives to all of us. And as we see the storm clouds gathering and the days growing near, uh, the days drawing near the, the darkness uh, overwhelming the light, I would suggest to you that we probably need to meet more often, not less often. Therefore, having five kids myself, as uh, we grew up in my household, we understand the, the issue of trying to find shoes that match everybody uh, on a Sunday morning. Therefore, I would say probably try to find those on, on Saturday night, right? Make provision. You should be here. Men are spending a lot of time uh, uh, preparing to feed your heart, to feed your soul, and you should be a part of that fellowship whenever uh, the doors are open uh, because there may come a time, my friends, when the doors uh, will be shut and not by our own uh, uh, will. Yeah? Does that make sense? Not in my notes. I just thought I'd put it in there because it's on my heart. We need to meet. We need to sit under the teaching. We need to be an encouragement. And it's very encouraging, as the guys who know, uh, when actually somebody shows up to your Sunday school that you've spent like 40 hours preparing for, and there's nobody there but your wife. It's, uh, you're thankful for the time that you had in the Word, uh, but it's not as encouraging as it could be if there's some people listening. Right? So Sunday school. Uh, it meets at 9 o'clock, Correct. In, the, in this room or the room behind me, uh, and Sunday evening, I think we have Sunday evening, it does not meet here, 6 o'clock, right? I think it's been that way for quite a while, right? So there you go, back to the notes, right? So here you go, the story here as it unfolds in chapter 5 is a story of persecution. It's the persecution of the religious leaders against the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5 and chapter 7, you really have John describing the opposition that he'll face in uh, uh, Judah, and then in chapter uh, Judea, and then chapter 6, uh, the opposition that Jesus faces in Galilee. So this portion of Scripture, again, in front of us shows us how hostility uh, begins against Jesus as he heals this man on the Sabbath. And again, he does it with utmost intentionality. He is intentionally confronting the Jewish religious leaders, and especially their Sabbath laws. Now, Jesus never broke the Sabbath the way that God intended for the Sabbath to be kept, but he deliberately and often violated the human traditions that had grown up that men had placed around the Sabbath because many Jews mistakenly believed that if they kept these traditions, they could be right with God. And that's not true. That's why he went after these systems. The truth is no one can have themselves made right or can be gained uh, gain right standing or have eternal life before God by keeping rules, anybody's rules, not even God's own rules, because God demands that his rules would be kept with absolute perfection, perfectly from the heart. That's the requirement. And no no man can do that. So again, Jesus is deliberately confronting these people on the Sabbath. He's trying to expose the hearts of the false religious leaders 
uh, of Israel, not for himself. He already knows their hearts. He's trying to expose it to those around them so they might be set free from this error and might understand truth. Now, again, remember the overall reason. I keep going back to it because it's important because I see John continuing to put the thesis forward in everything he writes, the purpose that John the Apostle writes uh, this letter. He says in John 20, verse 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what John has been doing. That's why he writes. That's what he's been doing from the very beginning. He's clearly indicating and proving that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and life, and, and, and the life was the light of men. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist identifies Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29, saying of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, or John, writes that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 2, we saw the divine power of Jesus on display at the wedding of Canaan. He turns the water into wine. And then a little bit later in that chapter, he goes into the temple and he drives out all these countless numbers of people who are blaspheming his father's house. We see his omniscience on display when John says that he himself knew it was in the heart of men. Some people saw what he did by his power there at Canaan or there at the temple and said, well, that's the kind of guy I'd like to follow. He's somebody special. We know that nobody can do these things, right, Nicodemus? Nobody can do these things unless you're of God. And the text says that Jesus knew their hearts. He was, they were believing in the spectacular, in the signs. They weren't seeing their personal need of Jesus as the Christ. They weren't seeing their personal need of him as the Savior. So he knew all men. They were believing kind of superficially in him. He wasn't believing their belief. We saw again his divine wisdom on display with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel in chapter 3. Right, and Jesus uh, declares to him that he is the only Savior of the world, that he has been sent into this world out of the love of the Father, that men might not perish, that men might have eternal life, that men might be saved from perishing in hell forever. And those who reject Jesus have already been judged, already condemned, already uh, facing God's uh, uh, condemnation and God's uh, judgment. We again saw the omniscience of Christ on display, chapter 4, he interviews the woman there at the well, the Samaritan woman there at the well, and his compassion, he reaches out to her, and he reaches into her life and exposes her sin that shows her her personal need of him as a savior. And then at the end of chapter 4, you might remember a few weeks back we were there, uh, it was the miraculous power of Jesus on display as he heals the noble man's son, and he does it just uh, with a word from a distance. Right, And so John has been displaying the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been demonstrating who he is, the reality of who he is all through his ministry. Therefore, again, the most compelling person on the entire planet is the person of Jesus Christ. And every one of us has to make a decision what we will do with him. You can't write him off. You have to deal with him. You have to either repent and believe that he is exactly who he is and then receive eternal life or reject him and then reject God's mercy and forgiveness forever that only comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you reject him, you will pay that penalty for the penalty of that error throughout eternity. And conscious torment, those are the only two choices. 
repent and fall down before him as king of kings and lord of lords because that's who he is bow your knee or face judgment because if you reject god's mercy through the person of jesus christ there remains nothing else for you except judgment you have to deal with the person of jesus christ chapter five again we come here and we're looking at jesus and his galilean ministry he's a been in Judea for almost a, a year. He's going to go into Galilee, be there for about 16 months. He'll go back uh, up to Judea during the Passion Week, uh, again, finishing his ministry there as he comes to his death and resurrection. But again, all through his ministry and all through his ministry up to this point and all the ministry uh, ahead of him, uh, he's going to put himself on display. He continues to prove the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that those who believe upon him will have eternal life. So here in John 5, the Jews are persecuting him. Because again, in part, his ministry has been, as it's early on here, has been gathering momentum, if you will. There's a large crowd of people who are beginning to follow him. People are starting to listen to him. He's one who preaches with great authority. He is one who preaches preaches and speaks with divine power. And, and people were hanging on to his every word. Uh, even his enemies, Luke uh, 7, uh, acknowledged that never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So Jesus, again, is somewhat of an unprecedented sensation in Israel. No one's ever seen anybody like him, because there's never been anybody like him. He speaks powerfully, he speaks boldly, he speaks confidently. He speaks authoritatively, those things concerning the kingdom of God and salvation. He performs miraculous works, which authenticates, again, the reality that he has divine power, that he is the Son of God that he is the Messiah. He demonstrates compassion and grace. He alleviates people's suffering. He heals the sick. Uh, the sick, he's virtually will banish disease from Palestine during his entire uh, the duration of his ministry. Cast out demons. He feels lo- feeds large groups of, of hungry people. He even raises the dead. I mean, who in the world can do those kind of things? And again, the answer is no one but God himself. And no one has ever seen anybody like him nor will they ever until he returns again because he's one of a kind. So literally thousands of people are following him, thousands upon thousands of people. They're mostly curiosity seekers, mostly those who are not devoted to him as Savior and Lord. And ultimately, as we know, the story unfolds. This fickle crowd will, uh, influenced by the false religious leaders of Judaism, who accuse him falsely of being demon-possessed or falsely accuse him of performing the miracles he does by the power of Beelzebub, that is, by the power of Satan, eventually this fickle crowd will reject him. They will call out his for his death before Pilate. You remember the story, right? Crucify him, crucify him. And again, sadly, the false religious leaders are somewhat successful in turning people away from Christ and keeping them in their damning error of unbelief. Because again, at the end of the ministry of Christ in the upper room, there's only 120 people who gather there. Just a few days later, perhaps, 1 Corinthians 15 says there's about 500. So out of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that he literally came in contact with, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people and thousands of people who are following him, there's only a few who seem to commit themselves to the Lord as both Lord and Savior at the end of his three-year ministry. So again, all through his ministry, he's facing hostility, increasing hostility, increasing opposition. You remember that John writes of it back in the first chapter, John 1 and 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. In the text right before us, verse 16, if you have the King James, it says this, or the New King James, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. John kind of loved, or uh, uh, 
tells the level of hostility or continues to unfold it, if you will, and, and you see it played out as the book uh, continues forward. John 7 and 1. After these things, the Jews were walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea uh, because the Jews, or again, the religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. Verse 19, he says, Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, Because you have a demon. Verse 25, some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, again, speaking of him or speaking of Jesus, is this not the man whom they, the religious leaders, are seeking to kill? They are seeking to seize him, uh, and uh, but no man laid hand on him because it was not his hour. God's in control even of the hostility against his son, but the hostility against his son is growing. The religious leaders want to kill him, and people know that. John 8 and 20, these are the words that he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not come. Verse 37, you seek to kill me because Jesus says, my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen from my father, and therefore you do the things that you've heard from your father. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. I mean, why do people hate Jesus Christ? You ever stop and ask yourself that question? Why are the people who are so intellectual and so smart, and the people that you're around who say, you know, if it wasn't for my great intellect, I'd believe this nonsense like you do, but my great intellect will just not allow me to believe these truths that you claim to be truth. Why, why when you start pressing them home on why they don't believe about the person and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, why do they get so hostile if there's nothing more than just an intellectual issue with them? The reason people hate Christ, the reason people hate Christ now when you share the truth with them is because he exposes them, because he's a truth teller. He exposes the reality of the fact that they're guilty, desperately in need of a sinner, and men don't like that. They hate that. That's why they persecuted him. The Jews, the Jews are, 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 uh, are persecuting him because he's violating the rules. They're missing the point of what he's trying to teach them. They're just upset about the rules being violated, and, and they're seeking to kill uh, uh, him because uh, Jesus says, again, my word has no place in you, and you're just doing what you've done from your father, what you've heard and done from your father. He gives them that scathing rebuke. Jesus says, John 8 and 44, you are your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Those who do not stand in the truth because there's, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's the liar and the father of lies. The Jews hated him because their father was not God. Their father was the devil. And that's why men in the world hate him. You only have two options. Again, it's very simple. Either God is your father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or Satan is your father. And again, the Bible says that, again, that people who have not received the person of Jesus Christ, those who have not repented, are guilty already. They're outside the kingdom, outside the realm of life. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who believe upon Christ and those who don't. Those who are headed to eternity with Christ because of God's kindness in God's presence are those who will remain under God's condemnation and wrath because they've rejected the only offer of mercy, and it comes to men through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the religious leaders hate him. He speaks the truth. He repeatedly confronts these false religious leaders. Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Right? So he's not mincing any words here. And throughout his ministry, he continues to confront these false religious leaders of Israel. And that's what the story is about here in John 5. Again, the damning power of false religion. So again, the miracle really is not the issue. It gives evidence to the deity of Christ that's true. But the issue is the reaction to the miraculous power of Jesus on display. How it triggers hostility in the religious leaders. 
So much so, again, that they're not really concerned about the man being healed. They're concerned that Jesus has healed him on the Sabbath. And that Jesus has given this man permission to break their laws, their man-made laws. And again, it angers them so much, they want to kill him. They want to slay him. So this is the condition of Judaism at the time of Christ. They will completely reject the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who has been sent into this world to seek to save, the one who's come into the world to save that which is lost out of the great compassion and love that God the Father has for a lost world. So again, the story demonstrates the power of satanic lies, the power of satanic lies over the truth, and how Satan has people locked up in these false ideological of fortresses trapped in the power of darkness, which they can only be set free from by understanding the truth. So let's look at the text here. Verse 1. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After these things, all the things that had just happened there in Galilee, including the healing of the nobleman's son at the end of the chapter 4, all the miracles that Jesus performed in Galilee. John doesn't record. The other gospel writers do. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John doesn't tell us what feast it is. There's a lot of speculation by the commentators on which one it might be. Some think it was the Passover in April. Others think it was the Feast of the Tabernacle in October. Others still think it might be the Feast of Pentecost. The Old Testament prescribed three feasts that men every year had to attend. Uh, So, obviously, it's more than likely one of these. We don't know which one. It really is not pertinent to the story. Uh, it was a feast that Jews would have attended and Jesus would have attended it in fulfilling faithfully what God commanded his people to do out of Deuteronomy 16. Verse 2. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a, uh, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew, a Bethsaida, having five porticos or walkways, porches, colonnades, depending on what uh, translation you have, just covers coverings to protect people from the heat of the sun, coverings to protect people who were there by the pool if perhaps it might rain. He says there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gates, probably the, the gate by which the sheep were led through to be mm-hmm. sacrificed in the nearby temple court. Again, a pool which is called in the Hebrew Bethsaida, and Bethsaida means house of mercy. So there are these pools scattered all over in in Jerusalem for various reasons, probably reasons that you would assume for water, for purification, bathing, cooling off in the sun. Many pools, many uh, in these uh, public places. Verse 3, it says, In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. I mean, it's a pretty pathetic sight around the pool here, right? Multitudes of sick people in various uh, states of uh, physical impairment. Uh, the King James says, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk. So the word for sick or impotent, without power, right, means weak, feeble, without strength. So you got the impotent, you got the sick, you have the blind, you have those who are unable to see. And then you have the lame. The authorized version calls them the halt, H-A-L-T, the halt. And it's interesting, that word lame there is a very interesting word, uh, uh, Kolos is the word in the Greek, and it means crippled, deformed, crooked. It literally means deprived of a foot or maimed. It's the same word that is used over in Matthew 18, 8, where Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. 
So again, the word has the idea of something being severed or removed. In Matthew fifteen thirty, it says, A great multitude came to him and were bringing them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, many others. They laid them down at his feet, and he, Jesus, healed them. So that the multitude marveled when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So Matthew is not saying he just healed those who were lame, those who had useless limbs or withered limbs. He's saying that Jesus healed those people who had no limbs, severed limbs, removed limbs. You go, that's crazy. I don't write it, I just read it. They didn't have an arm, he gave them an arm. If a man didn't have a leg, he gave him a leg. That's the idea behind the word. You say, well, that's pressing it a little bit too far. No farther than a man who has no eyes that can see, and Jesus gives them eyes that all of a sudden instantaneously work. That's the power of Christ. And these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, withered. King James, New King James says paralyzed. It's interesting that word there in the Greek means dry, deprived of their natural juices, shrunk, wasted, withered. I mean, it must have been a pathetic sight there at the pool, the sight of all these peoples, again, sin ravaging the human body. Obviously, not all sickness is a direct result of sin, but sickness and death in the world is a result of sin, a direct result of Adam's sin, Adam's fall, and his rebellion having terrible effects upon all of his children. Sin takes a terrible toll on mankind's body. Now, at this point in the story, after that word uh, withered, there may be a dash in your translation that runs all the way down through verse 4, the end of verse 4, and that's telling you that something has been added here. Again, most of the modern manuscripts, as I said at the beginning when uh, I read the text, have updated uh, English translations. Uh, They've omitted the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Again, the ESV, NIV, uh, for example, uh, because the ancient manuscripts, the older manuscripts, didn't have this portion of Scripture in them. Therefore, it's assumed that it was added by a scribe at some point, perhaps as an explanation to the superstition that was going on there at the pool, why people were laying alongside the pool, why this man answers Jesus the way he does in verse 7 when he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but when I'm coming up, uh, coming, another man steps down before me. So again, the text from the authorized version, the King James and the NAS, still include this portion of Scripture where most of the modern translations have made certain changes because more, monu- more manuscripts have been found uh, from the translations, right, from, from, the, from the lines that the, the translations come from. There's literally thousands upon thousands, five to 6,000 uh, Greek manuscripts, parts of Greek manuscripts that have been found. So the oldest and the oldest portions... The oldest manuscripts, this portion was not included. Therefore, again, it's thought by most of the scholars that it's an addition somewhere along the way. So at the end of verse 3 and the versions that have it, it says, waiting for those, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down from certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first was uh, in, uh, was first after the stirring of the water stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with, with he was afflicted. Again, most scholars would agree that this portion of Scripture should be disregarded. It's not part of the original. It's material that has been added by a scribe at some point. More than likely what happened is the scribe put it down in the marginal notes 
just kind of an explanation for again what's going on here historically and culturally, and somehow it worked its way into the into the text, right from the margin right into the text itself. Early church fathers were aware of this, and again they were aware of it that it's a superstition of the day. Now, obviously, these kinds of pools uh, uh, exist throughout the world, not miraculous pools like this one was supposed to be, but these kind of therapeutic pools. <clears throat> And perhaps uh, spring-fed therapeutic pools. And so what causes the water to stir? It wasn't an angel. More than likely what's happening is when the water comes up from the bubble in these spring-fed pools, it bubbles to the top and it stirs the, the water on the top to stir. It's interesting, as I was reading the story, it reminded me when we used to live in eastern Oregon. We lived in eastern Oregon. We lived out in the will, out in, uh, kind of in the wilderness, but way out there, not a whole lot of people uh, in the town in which we lived. But even further out from where we lived, there were all these different kinds of therapeutic springs in different locations. Uh, one of them just south of town was hot. I think there's probably a couple other hot ones, but there's a big hot one just south of town. And around all of these uh, pools, these springs, were abandoned buildings huge buildings probably built in the 1930s 1940s where people at that time who had different various diseases and stuff would come they travel across the country to go to these therapeutic mineral ponds and they would stay in these lodges that were built around these springs and, and again when we were there we lived there 30 years ago and they were still there they're obviously in rundown condition and nobody's using them uh, anymore but the thought of therapeutic healing of water and therapeutic pools isn't unique it's not unique to the time of uh, Jesus, but the superstition that the angel appeared or an angel appeared certainly is, right? An angel appeared, super, the superstition goes, steers the water. That's what makes this spring <coughs> unique and especially attractive uh, to those who are suffering from physical infirmities. Those who don't have any hope. Those who don't have any hope of a cure. Those who are looking for a miracle. And again, this is nothing more than superstition. You'll never find anywhere in the Bible of supposed miraculous healings that involve an angel. You just won't find it. An angel that somehow energized water and the first person who could get into the pool or into the water was healed. In fact, you won't read in the Bible anywhere of angels being involved in healing. You won't read of any kind of a biblical healing where anyone who can push or shove others out of the way and get into the water before they do would be the beneficiary of that kind of activity. And on top of that, this is really not the time historically of miracles between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the first book of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, there's a 400-year time span, 400 years of silence. Prophets aren't speaking. Writers aren't writing. Miracles aren't being done until Jesus shows up in human history as a man. So again, this is nothing more than an addition, nothing more than superstition, and a superstition that is incredibly sad because it leads people who have absolutely no hope to a source that cannot help them. Right? It leads people to a source who have no hope to a source that can't help them. So the text really should read like this, verse 3, in these last, or in these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, and lame, withered, verse 5, and there was a man who'd been ill for 38 years. A man there who'd been ill for 38 years, right? So this man's been laying at this pool for a long period of time. Now, we're not told what his condition is. We're not told if he's paralyzed. We're not told if he's just so weak that he can't freely on his own get into the water, but he's been there again for a long period of time and can't get in. Maybe he was brought there at some uh, distant time. Maybe he was brought there when he was a teen. Maybe he was left there with the best of intentions. Maybe he was left there in the first few months that he was at the pool. Maybe he was greatly encouraged, excited about the possibility that he might be healed. But now after many months, many years... He's got to, his hope has to be uh, given away to despair. 
I mean, evidently he's abandoned. There's no one there to help him. Days become months, months become years, and for a long time he just lays there. And not only is that sad, but for a long time he just continues to cling to that pathetic belief in the miraculous power of the water. John Phillips, in his commentary, gives a little bit of a colorful flavor, if you will. John Phillips says, How can we measure the misery of this man? No friends, no family. His companions were life's victims. Blind people, lame people, people withered up inside and out. All their hopes had shrunk to the chance that they had of outsmarting others in being first into the pool. There would be the usual jockeying for position, all the intensity of people obsessed with their own physical condition and the pathetic hope of healing. The sight, the stench of it all must have been depressing. Here was institutionalized misery, unending poverty, because this man could not work. Cynicism, no doubt, had taken root in his mind. He had almost given up hope. He would have watched with the new arrivals to see how others eyed them and made sure that they were pushed back. Or if one was too strong for that, see how he or how they fixed their eyes on that person with such hatred and cursed them as a rival. It's quite a picture at this pool. But Jesus provides an opportunity, or this situation, this man in the pool, that provides Jesus an opportunity to put himself on display, his power on display, his kindness. Verse 6, When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition and said to him, Do you wish to get well? He knew he'd been there for a long time because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all things. A lot of the commentators stop and say, Well, that's kind of an odd question. Do you wish to get well? Why would Jesus ask that question? I don't think it's odd or out of line whatsoever. He asked the question, Jesus asked the question to find out if there's any hope left in this fellow whatsoever. Because again, he's been there for so long, perhaps he's in complete despair. And I think obviously Jesus asked the question to draw attention to the issue at hand, exactly as he did the woman at the well, when he talked about her immoral life and turned the whole thing up that she wasn't the one... Or he wasn't the one that was thirsty, but she was the one that was thirsty, right? So he draws her attention to the issue at hand. And here we are nearly, after 40 years, this guy has been sitting at this, pal, at this, uh, at the side, this uh, pool, and somebody shows up who seems to care. After nearly 40 years, someone who shows up has some compassion, some pity, because evidently nobody's taken any interest in him up to this point. Except now now someone shows up at the scene, it's Jesus, and he engages this man in a conversation, again, drawing this man's attention to his need, and then offering himself as the uh, one who can meet that need, the one who will show him compassion and grace and concern. Now, you have to stop again and just back away from the story and understand some of the backstory here in the time of the culture. Uh, the, this illness that this man had, uh, he would have been an outcast or seen as an outcast, certainly by the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. They would have thought that this man's uh, illness was a punishment from God because he was wicked. That's what they would have assumed. And no religious leader of Israel would have dared to consider even stopping to enter in to a conversation with him 
the, no religious leader would uh, even stop to show him the least bit of kindness or concern or consideration. Nobody except the compassionate Christ. Just like no one speaks to an immoral Samaritan woman except the compassionate Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time in that condition, said to him, Do you wish to get well? Verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So again, this guy's been there sick for nearly 40 years, half a life. He bought into the superstitious belief that somehow the water was going to make a difference in his life if he could just get into it at the right time when it bubbled. And even in his answer to Jesus, when Jesus comes and and offers him compassion, in essence, the man remains faithful to and defends the system, this false system that has provided him no healing. He's still confident in it. He will not admit the failure of the system for healing. But what he does is he says, look, the problem here is not the system. The problem is everybody around me. Nobody will help me get into the water. Nobody will help me get into the pool. I mean, it really is amazing insight into blindness. Amazing insight into the mind of those who are deceived. Now, again, I think we realize this, but it has to be said that these kind of superstitious beliefs are not uncommon, even in the world in which we live. And most certainly not uncommon in the ancient world. And another thing that I think we need to bring to our attention, to the forefront of our mind as we're trying to understand the story, is the lack of proper medical care at this point in history. Sickness and disease were rampant. And when people became sick, listen, they stayed sick. The only reason we have doctors and hospitals is because of Christ. The only reason we have doctors and hospitals is because of biblical Christianity that put forth the compassion of the Savior to people who are in need. It's biblical Christianity that is the origin of these kinds of systems of care, whether it be hospitals or orphanages or et cetera and so forth. At this time, they don't have these things. People become sick, they stay sick. We live in an unprecedented time of human history where many diseases which once ravaged the world can be taken care of, and some of them even eliminated through, again, advances of modern medicine. But this is not the way it's been for the vast majority of history. And most certainly, this is not the way it was here at the time of Christ. Pain and agony, disease were commonplace. And again, when someone got sick, they stayed sick. Because there's no hospital, there's no doctors, there's no way to deal with sickness and disease. So again, this man has no idea who he's talking to. He has no idea who Jesus is. The man in the story here laying by the pool is not a believer. Immediately, verse 8, Jesus says to him, Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Three commands. Very simple. Get up. Pick up. Walk. Verse 9. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pellet and began to walk. Now I wish we had time. I thought about keeping you here till 4 or 5 in the afternoon to work this through. But I decided not to. I wish we had time to really unpack that statement. Because stop and think about it just on a superficial level. Here's a guy who hasn't walked for 40 years. And the fact that he's immediately able to stand up and walk is absolutely stunning, exclamation point, underlined, bolded in your text. It's stunning. His muscles were obviously atrophied, shrunk. 
without strength, shortened. You who are in the medical field, you know, people who are infirmed, laying for a long period of time, uh, even for a short period of time, you got to keep moving them because what happens is the bodies, the muscles pull and they, you end up in a contracture, all drawn in. His joints haven't moved for years. His bones haven't bored his body weight. And in an instant, they all begin to function immediately. There's no progressive healing here. There's no extended stay at the rehab facility. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now, just note again on the superficial level the, the contrast in the methods of healing. Here's a man who is holding on to his superstitious beliefs, waiting for troubled waters, if you will. They can't solve his problems and won't heal him. And here's Jesus who walks up to him and immediately heals him without the use of water. Here's a man who hopes that in his own effort, in in this crowd of people, that somehow he can be the first one into the water amongst all these other hurting people. That he can somehow take care of his own issue. And here's Jesus who comes up out of tremendous compassion and heals the man without ever being asked to do so. You'll notice in the story here, there's nothing about this man's faith, because again, I don't believe he has any. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Now, I say that he doesn't have any faith, and I do that in part to draw our attention to the modern so-called quote-unquote faith healers who tell people in our day that when they fail to get quote-unquote healed, it's because of their lack of faith or their sinful unbelief. You've seen that and heard that, I'm sure, which is a tremendously unbelievable and cruel accusation to make against somebody who is suffering. But not completely surprising because the so-called faith healers of our day The contemporary faith healers of our time, they do not work for God. They are ambassadors of Satan. They are liars, deceivers, charlatans, and they need to be called out for exactly who they are because that's who they are. They are ambassadors of darkness. Oftentimes, you'll see when Jesus heals, he heals those who do not manifest any faith whatsoever beforehand, and this man is a prime example. And the healing of this man... Over all the people who are there laying on the pool at the Bethsaida is a perfect illustration of God's sovereign choice, God's grace. Christ chose to heal this man because Christ chose to heal his man. He makes the choice. He didn't choose him again because he has faith, because he doesn't have any. This man's an unbeliever. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. There's no discussion whatsoever in the story about salvation. Christ, out of his sovereign grace, compassion, and mercy, elects to show kindness to this man. Now, again, I told you at the beginning, the story really is not about healing, so I had to put my brakes on and my pin down and say, no, I don't go there, don't keep him for hours and hours, right? The healing occurs in the, in the issue, it occurs in the story, obviously, but it's not the issue. So I have to stop and, <clears throat> excuse me, not try to unpack it anymore. Again, there's much more, and maybe at some point I'll do that. There's much more that we could say about the healing power of Christ through the New Testament. It's spectacular. But the issue here is what comes next. The issue in this text is really what comes next. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, began to walk. Here it is. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. That's the point of the miracle. That's the point of the healing. It happens on the Sabbath. Jesus performs it on the Sabbath. Look, the guy had been laying there for 38 years. Do you think it matters to him one whit if he got healed one day earlier or one day later? Wouldn't have made a difference in his life. 
The point of the encounter here is that Jesus is trying to expose the damning false religious system of Judaism. So he intentionally performs the miracle on the Sabbath. And on top of that, Jesus says to the man, tells the man, pick up your pallet and walk. Now the idea behind the verb tense in that word walk is really walk around. Right? Not just get out of here, it's walk around. I want you to draw attention to yourself. Why? Number one, because he'd been there so long laying at the pool, right, in that infirm position or condition. But the second thing, because he is carrying his pallet, his mat, his sleeping pad, camping mat, uh, his bed, if you want, whatever, however you can understand what he's carrying, right? He's carrying his, his bed. Verse 10, so the Jews, again, the religious leaders, were saying to this man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Again, notice in the response, it's absolutely pathetic. Not one word of joy, not one word of excitement about the man for the man. This man who'd been ill for, Ill for 38 years, now immediately cured. No celebration, no rejoicing, no compassion, only anger. Because this man is breaking the Sabbath rules. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now in the Old Testament, we know that God prohibited working on the Sabbath but he never specified exactly what kind of work was forbidden. It seems, therefore, that it was probably a prohibition of the Israelites to participate in their normal week-long occupation on the Sabbath. But rabbinical tradition went way way, uh, beyond that and had about 39 forbidden categories of work, including carrying uh, goods or loads uh, based on certain passages like Nehemiah 13, Jeremiah 17. But again, those passages are aimed at people who are uh, conducting their ordinary business, their ordinary livelihood on the Sabbath, which is forbidden. But that don't, these don't, rules don't apply to this man because it's not his job to make a living by carrying his mat. Right? They've taken what God has put down and added all this burden to it that makes the whole thing ridiculous. Somewhere this past week I read that you could not carry your handkerchief was one of the rules. But if you had it, like, taped on your forehead, then you could carry that. Because it wasn't really carrying, it was, it was with you. I mean, it's just ridiculous rules. Right? So the, the, the Sabbath really has nothing to do with this individual. But God had intended that the Sabbath would be a blessing to men, a day of rest. And again, the rabbis corrupted. They turned it into a burden. Now, Jesus is not telling the man to break God's Sabbath rules. Right? He's telling, them, he's telling him to defy the burdensome regulation of the Jewish religious leaders that they had placed upon that day. Because, again, he's trying to expose them. He's trying to expose the false religious system. He's trying to expose their hearts, these people who perverted the Sabbath by the rules. And, again, they were more concerned about their trivial rules uh, than they were about this man's well-being. Again, the fact that he'd just been physically cured after this long, prolonged uh, period of disability. One writer says this, the reason this happens is that false religion of Judaism or false religion of Judaism, like other false systems, can't change the inside, so it's left to manipulate life on the outside. And I thought that's pretty good, right? It's only biblical Christianity. It's only the promises of the new covenant from an inside-out transformation that changes people. All religious systems do is impose external regulations that people can't keep because it can't change the heart from the inside out. Only Christ can do that. So again, Jesus brings this confrontation purposefully against the Jewish religious leaders, again, to expose them. It's interesting, there's a story over in Luke 6. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 6, it's Jesus. He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man, remember the story, he has a withered hand. 
Luke 6 and 7, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. That's enough right there, if you just read that, to say, I don't need to be involved in this system, right, in this false damning system. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said to the man with the withered hand, Rise, come forward. And he rose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. His hand was restored. But they themselves, the religious leaders, were filled with rage and discussed what they might do together against Jesus. Filled with rage. Jesus tells them over in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the religious leaders, you know what, fellas? I can do whatever I want. And I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath or with the Sabbath. Mark 2 and 27, he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want. So again, he's just exposing them. These false religious leaders is exposing their hearts. Christ has a tremendous amount of love, a tremendous amount of compassion for those who are actually in need. False religious leaders have no compassion whatsoever, no concern. They're absolutely wicked. Their only concern is for rules and regulations. Their external religious system, again, has nothing to do with man's heart. Again, that's why you see Jesus all through the New Testament confronting these people. These false religious leaders, these false religious prophets, they need to be exposed. Their doctrines that they're teaching are damning errors. They lead people into eternally damning lies. So again, Jesus intentionally brings the Sabbath confrontation. He uh, refuses to pay any attention to their legalistic man-made Sabbath rules. He tells this man deliberately to pick up his pallet and start walking around, knowing that it will attract the attention of the Jewish religious leaders. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Verse 11, but he answered them, But he answered them, He who made me well is the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. Verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, But the man who was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus has just slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Pretty sad commentary on the fellow. His ingratitude. Nothing in the story about thanking Jesus for his healing. In fact, he doesn't even know who healed him. He doesn't know it's Jesus. doesn't know Jesus' name. Yet no rejoicing by the religious leaders for the man's healing. No praise for God for such a great miracle, only contempt. Because this man's breaking the rules. And then there's one who gave him permission to break the rules. Again, the one who was healed didn't know who it was, for he had slipped away while he was there in that crowd, but Jesus had not abandoned him. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, there probably were thousands of people in the temple, but Jesus intentionally Mm -hmm. seeks him out. Again, the man has absolutely no idea who healed him. He has no idea where the power came from to make him well. So Jesus finds this man, and he enters into a conversation with him. It was probably longer than the one that's recorded here. And perhaps what's recorded here comes at the end of the conversation where Jesus says, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, obviously, not all uh, illness is a direct result of personal sin. Some is. We're told of that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. It says, For this reason, because of your sin, some among you are weak and sick, and a number asleep or dead. Right? It's, uh, sometimes it's due to personal sin. Sometimes it's just due to living in a fallen world. 
But I think the most natural understanding of what the Lord is saying here and his warning to this man is that his illness somehow was a result of a specific personal sin on his part. And if the man persisted in unrepentant sin, Jesus warned there's going to be an infinitely greater suffering than just 38 years that you've just gone through with this debilitating disease. That, of course, would be eternal punishment in hell. Now, again, I don't see anything in the story that suggests the man is saved. Just because he's gone to the temple, some people, well, he went to the temple to worship. No, just because you go to the temple doesn't mean you're saved any more than because you come to church means you're saved. Nobody's saved by just walking in the building. There's nothing in the story that suggests the man is saved. Temple doesn't save anybody. Church buildings don't save anybody. Again, he could have just walked into the temple because he wanted to show everybody what happened to him. But again, he goes to the temple and he doesn't even know who did this for him. There again, he has no personal faith in the Savior, no personal faith in Jesus because he doesn't know him. In fact, I would suggest even further the fact that he was not saved by what happens next. Jesus found him in the temple. Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews, again, the Jewish religious leaders who are hostile towards Christ, that it was Jesus who made me well. I think that seals the story. As pathetic as the story is up to this point, it takes a sharp turn towards the worst. The man's ingratitude. He just turns Jesus over, in essence, to his enemies, because most certainly, being part of the culture, he knew that the religious authorities were hostile towards the person of Jesus. So it's absolutely shocking betrayal on the man's part. Christ, in his compassion, Christ, in his kindness, heals this man instantaneously from 38 years of suffering. He warns him about the truth of repenting from sin as to not face God's wrath. The man knows the Jewish religious leaders hate Jesus. They are after him. And yet he himself, who had been the recipient of God's mercy through his son, the person of Jesus Christ, turns him in. He turns Jesus into his enemies. In the face of amazing mercy, compassion, grace, personally receiving of the kindness at Jesus' hand. The man declares his loyalty to the false leaders of Judaism, the one who hated Jesus and want to see him dead. Why would he do that? Well, because they confronted him. What are you doing? What are you doing carrying your pallet? You can't do that. That's against the rules. And what was his answer? It's not my fault. Somebody else told me to do it. He's trying to put himself back in the good graces of the religious leaders the damning religious leaders, the damning power of the false system that they're promoting. So here's a man who's been graciously healed by Christ, and he rejects him. He takes his stand with those who are persecuting Christ. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the story has to be one of the greatest examples of ingratitude. One of the greatest stories of of stubborn unbelief found anywhere in the Scripture. The man doesn't praise Jesus for healing him, doesn't thank him. He turns him in to those who are persecuting him, persecuting Christ. And this is why all these false religious systems are so damning. All they do is, again, they deal with the externals. They don't deal with the heart. They cause people to trust in things that can never save them. And the entire human race has fallen desperately in need of salvation that only comes by God, from God, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith alone, through grace alone. Religions, all religions are impotent to save anyone, but religious systems are powerful enough to enslave all men who believe in them. 
But you'd have thought, if we were writing the story, you'd have thought everybody in the story would have been jumping up and down singing the Hallelujah Chorus, right? Everybody would have been saying, what, what a great, compassionate display of God's kindness and grace. They would have immediately recognized that God was in their presence, but they didn't. Again, who has the power to heal but God himself? Again, a little bit later in the book of John, Jesus has another healing. In John chapter 9, he heals the man who's born blind. The religious leaders are upset. And the man who's healed points out the fact that nobody but God can heal a man born blind. The religious leaders fail to recognize who Jesus is. The climax, probably, of spiritual blindness in this book of John is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead four days. Remove the stone. No, no, no. He stinketh. Don't do that. Right? Everybody knows he's dead four days. And Jesus raises him by a word. What do the religious leaders do? They set out a plan. We need to kill Jesus and Lazarus. The damning lies of false religious systems. False religious systems damn people who are part of it. And again, these blind leaders of the blind are committing converts that are making men twice the sons of hell as they are. Listen, that's why Jesus confronts these guys all the time. That's why he confronted the false religious uh, leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees throughout the New Testament. On the other hand, we, who are much kinder and gentler, much more civilized, we're impotent. We're afraid to talk to anybody or confront anybody on anything. We just want everybody to get along, right? We want to make sure that the one thing that we're never accused of is being judgmental on any issue. Jesus, however, has much more understanding and compassion than we do because he confronts and rebukes the false spiritual leaders because he knows that people who believe these lies and follow these systems eternally are going to have their souls doomed, damned. That's why he confronts them. Just a suggestion, we who follow Christ, especially us who are men who follow Christ and are leaders in our homes, maybe we need to act a little bit more like men. Maybe we need to be a little more concerned about the truth and the eternal destinies of those people around us. More concerned about the truth, more concerned about the glory of Christ. Did we sing about that this morning? I can't remember. Maybe it needs to be something in action, not just things we sing on a Sunday morning. Maybe we ought to be concerned about the truth and the eternal destinies of fallen, lost men and the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ than we are concerned that we get along with people and people like us. The question of the ages is always the issue of what will you do with Jesus? Who do you think he is? John says, look, I'm going to write this book so that you will know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by knowing that truth, you will have life in his name because there's salvation found in no other name except the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says, he who believes is not judged, he does not believe has been judged already. That's the condition of every man and woman apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the condition of every one of you who are watching me or listening to me who don't know Christ. You're lost already, condemned already. The evidence is prolific throughout the entire new testament the the gospel of john is written so that you might have life and you see the person in the power of the lord jesus christ is compassion and mercy and you reject that for a false system for a satanic line 
you leave yourself without any hope outside of the realm of salvation because you've rejected the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this time together in your word, although it really points out to us the false, damning lies of the evil one who continues to entrap people who love their sin and won't bow their knee. And those who love their sin and won't bow their knee won't repent and place their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior, will be eternally lost. But again, you out of your great mercy and compassion sent Christ into the world to demonstrate your love for men, to demonstrate your tender mercy. And we rejoice in that. Help us to be strong men and women, followers of the truth, followers of Christ, compassionate, but not allowing people to remain in darkness where we have opportunity to speak truth. We might be lights and your ambassadors of truth to a dark world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.